the epitome of dining, of a dining experience. So uh, we had a chance to go there as a family, like an extended family. We went to the Centerton Country Club. And I remember we were we were all dressed up. We were all in our in our finest, and you know I, I have a large extended family, and we were there, and and so we go into this restaurant, and it's a buffet, right? So my eyes are big. There's carving stations. There's uh, uh, seafood uh, opportunities. There's pastas, Italian meats and cheeses, fresh fruit. But to me, the greatest gift of all was that it was all you can eat. So I could just feast. And so um, while my parents were occupied with the party, I was occupied with my favorite delicacy, whipped cream. <laughs> I, uh, I gorged myself on what I call then whooped cream, but I gorged myself on whipped cream. It was available to me, plate after plate, probably the least expensive thing at the buffet, and I just kept going back and back. And uh, I, I remember uh, my parents, again, were, were occupied with the, with the family, and, but my grandmother was not. She was watching, and, uh, and as a good grandmother, she let me continue to eat plate after plate of whipped cream. And then finally, she clued my mom in on what was going on, so my mom came over, and, and the next thing I remember is being outside of the Centerton Country Club, <laughs> puking as the plates of whipped cream were coming back up, and as people were leaving the restaurant, looking over at uh, my enjoyment of the dining experience. So as a community of Jesus followers, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. It's, the, it's, it's core, it's one of our core doctrines, but my assessment is that this tremendous truth of the resurrection is like a banquet of the finest of foods. The implications of what Jesus has accomplished are outstanding. They are astonishing, yet I think often we settle for the whipped cream. We've settled for the crumbs of the resurrection, just a small portion, and normally the portion we cling to of the resurrection hope is that one day we'll be in heaven with God. And, and to be honest, when all... When all we have by virtue of Jesus' resurrection, if the only thing we get is a future hope of heaven, that's good, but that is not good enough. Like, it is good to deal with our needs in the afterlife where we get to be with God, but what the resurrection accomplishes for us is so much greater than just that truth. And I think as a church not just Living Faith Alliance Church, I think the evangelical church in America is often missing out on the great feast that is the resurrection. So my question to you this morning, you can do a little diagnosis of yourself, what difference does it make to you that Jesus is alive? Could it be that everything you believe about God, if the bones of Jesus were found in Jerusalem, would it change anything? Does the resurrection actually change anything for you? So what does it matter that Jesus rose from the dead? What really changes because Jesus lives? And the answer is this, because Jesus lives, everything changes. 
Everything is altered because of that fact. And, and, and my desire this morning is for the seed of that truth to be planted in the soil of your heart. I want the Holy Spirit, Diego led us into uh, this morning into this prayer of calling out for things to wake up. And what I want to awaken by the work of the Holy Spirit is the truth of the resurrection, that because he lives, everything is different. So this morning, we're gonna look at four facts of the resurrection of Jesus to awaken in you the truth that because he lives, because he lives, everything is different. So first fact, the resurrection of Jesus, it is much more than just a fact of history. So the first fact is to say it's more than just a fact. It's more than just an event that happened a couple thousand years ago. And I think what we do is we tend to limit the scope, the power, the great buffet of the resurrection. We, we limit it by defending and living at the place of the historical accuracy. Let me, let me explain what I'm talking about. So uh, about mm, within the last century, uh, really starting around the 1940s, was the birth of what's called the historical critical method. Um, and, and what that did for us in biblical scholarship, it helped us understand the context in which the biblical authors were writing so that we would get better insight into what are they talking about and, and what are they grabbing from their culture in order to make their points. And so it has helped biblical scholarship understand more fully what the Bible is about. However, in its extreme, what the historical critical method has done is it's tried to replace the text or, or bring the supernatural down to all natural explanations of things minimizing the supernatural work of God. For example, the resurrection, a means to explain the historical uh, data without using the supernatural. So obviously, as a faith community, we, need to we needed to respond to this line of thinking because the resurrection is core to our faith. And so uh, the historical critical method has really given birth to four uh, different theories. Uh, I, I, we'll talk about five. Uh, one is Christianity. So five different theories uh, about the resurrection. So I want to run those through really quick for you. These are all logical possibilities and should be dealt with logically, but I'm going to be fair. I'm certainly biased to one of these theories. So I'm not going to do a great job of explaining all the other four, but I want to introduce it to you. A guy named Peter Kreefs wrote a fantastic book. If you want to look him up, write his name down. He'll, he'll do a good job of explaining more of these arguments. I'm just going to introduce them to you. So these are the five different theories to explain the historical data around the resurrection. And the goal is to come up with an adequate explanation for the events of history. Right, so if we can't believe in the supernatural, there's some events that we can't deny. What are we going to do with that data? So here's different five different theories of the resurrection. The first one is called the swoon theory. It simply states Jesus did not die. He kind of, he kind of fainted. All right, but, but what you need to know is these Roman soldiers on the punishment of death examined his body. And they decided they didn't need to break his legs in order to speed up his death because he was already dead. And if they got this wrong, their life was forfeit. 
Also, I can't buy into this theory because a half-dead, staggering sick man, right, would not have convinced the disciples that he was God, would not have convinced the disciples to to give their lives for the advancement of of something that that seemed to be a fluke. Also, a swooning half-dead man uh, would not have the capacity to move great stones or overpower Roman guards. And when the Jewish authorities wanted to come up with a reason to explain away the absence of Jesus' body, right, they didn't, they didn't say he, had, he hadn't really died, that he had swooned, right? He said that the, that the guards had fallen asleep, right? So, so, so the swoon theory doesn't seem to address the data sufficiently. Second theory is the conspiracy theory that Jesus died, but he didn't rise, and, and the apostles, the disciples, were, were these great deceivers. They were spinning this tale to trick everyone, that the disciples have made it all up. But consider this. After a lifetime of torture, persecution, not one man, woman, or child confessed to making up this conspiracy. If they have made up the story, the 11 disciples that Jesus chose were the greatest masterminds, most creative thinkers of human history. They surpassed Shakespeare. They surpassed Tolkien. They even surpassed Tyler Perry, (laughs) if you can believe it. So uh, another point you need to know is uh, they experienced, the disciples, in perpetuating this great conspiracy, they experienced no personal gain by propagating such a lie. They were hated, they were scorned, persecuted, excommunicated, tortured, exiled for decades for this conspiracy that that offered them nothing uh, of human power in return. And if the resurrection was a lie, then it could have been easily proven by just finding the body. Last point I want to make on this one is that the disciples in this scenario would have given their lives for something that they knew to be a lie. Third theory of the resurrection is that Jesus died. This is the hallucination theory. Jesus died, but he didn't rise, and the apostles were deceived. They had had too much wine to drink. They, they thought they saw Jesus. Maybe it was wishful thinking on their part, but they were hallucinating uh, when, when they had these eyewitness accounts of Jesus. But consider this. At one time, there were more than 400 eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. That was at at one time. That's a mass hallucination. And also, the, the hallucinations of Jesus would have lasted for hours, not minutes. And these hallucinations would be eating food. These hallucinations would have been able to be touched. The scars were touched. So the apostles would not have believed in a hallucinating uh, the hallucination of Jesus if he were in fact still again in the tomb. The fourth theory of the resurrection is the myth that Jesus died but he didn't rise and the apostles were myth makers. They, 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 weren't, they weren't really spinning a, a lie. They were just exaggerating the truth, kind of like uh, the, maybe the legend of King Arthur. But for myths to develop, it takes a lot of time. And there was not enough time for this myth to develop between the time of the events that it's referring to 
and the time of the writing uh, of the apostles. And there were too many eyewitnesses. There was too much opposition to Jesus, too many details that could have been verified for this to be mythological. And even the extra biblical testimony, meaning those that wrote history outside of the Bible, uh, refer to the historical accuracy of the authors and the historical facts that could be verified of Jesus. So those are the four. I'll tell you the one I was biased towards. Jesus died plus Jesus rose. That equals Christianity. See, these five theories may be able to fit aspects of the historical data. However, they do not have the capacity to give an adequate explanation to account for the rise of resurrection faith that changed the world. The best explanation for what happens next in the story, where this group of 11 literally changed the world with the truth of what happened at this event, the best explanation for the resurrection faith exhibited by the followers is that Jesus actually rose from the dead, that the resurrection happened. So you can see that it's important to be able to stand for the historical reliability of the fact of Jesus' death and resurrection. However, please hear this, believing in the historical fact of the resurrection does not in and of itself change your life. It doesn't in and of itself lead you to resurrection faith. So if we overfocus on this battle, if we win all the arguments for the historical fact of the resurrection, we are not necessarily inducing faith. And when we do that and we overfocus on the historical event, we underfocus on the impact of the resurrection and we miss the purpose to which Christ died. So we need to fight the battle to believe in the resurrection, but it can't stop at belief in a fact of history. There are plenty of devils, Satan himself, who would believe in the fact of resurrection. The truth is, Jesus did not simply die to take our punishment. He died so that we might actually live. I like the way T.D. Jake says it. I'm not sure what that picture is there. That's not T.D. Jakes. But T.D. Jakes says, salvation is the root, the resurrection is the fruit. So in his resurrection, Jesus earned for us life that is just like his. Listen to the way Peter uh, says it in 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of of Jesus from the dead. It is through resurrection that we now have a brand new hope for life. It is a hope for living. The resurrection opened our eyes to a brand new way to be alive. For example, let's look at the disciples. So this is my second fact of the resurrection of Jesus. It radically changed the trajectory of the disciples' lives. Like the resurrection made them go from this trajectory to this, right? It radically changed where they were going. You see, Jesus' death had shattered all hopes that Jesus could restore the kingdom of God. 
We were talking about this at our house yesterday. Like the, the, the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday was a Saturday of confusion, was a Saturday of despair, right? Like all hope is now lost. That's what the disciples were feeling. And maybe that's how many of you are feeling. One of my favorite biblical theologians said this, <clears throat> if Christ is not risen from the dead, the long curse of God's redemptive acts to save his people ends in a dead-end street, in a tomb. If the resurrection of Christ is not a reality, then we have no assurance that God is a living God, for death has the last word. Faith is futile because... The object of that faith has not vindicated himself as the Lord of life. Christian faith is then incarcerated in the tomb along with the final highest self-revelation of God in Christ if Christ is indeed dead. And that's precisely what the disciples were believing, that, that, their, hope, that their hope was now lost. You know how we do the uh, he is risen, he is risen indeed, probably for them is he is dead, he is dead indeed, right? Like it is, it is over. Mark 14, 50 says that when Jesus was seized by the temple guards, his disciples left him. They abandoned him. Peter, cursing his denial of Jesus, it was like he couldn't create enough distance between himself and any sort of association with Jesus. Their dreams of a restored kingdom, their dreams of reigning with the Messiah died with Jesus that Friday and were buried with him in the tomb. But in a few days, all of that would change. The disillusioned disciples had a new message, a new confidence. Why? Because they had a new revelation that Jesus was alive. What changed these disciples from terrified, hopeless, disappointed, uh, a band to, uh, to bold preachers of Jesus as the Messiah, as the agent of salvation, was the reality of resurrection. It was not the amazing teaching of Jesus. It was not the incredible wisdom of his miracles or even his sacrifice on the cross. It wasn't those things that, those things were all true on Saturday, but what changed everything for the disciples was what happened on Sunday. Here's the facts. Jesus was dead. The hopes of the disciples, dead. Sunday came, and the tomb was now empty. Just as suddenly, the disciples' dead hope was alive again. Their discouragement and uncertainty was transformed into confidence and boldness. The faith of the disciples, the faith of the disciples in the reality that Jesus rose from the grave literally changed the world. They were confident that they had seen him alive. They heard his voice. They listened to his teaching. They recognized his face. They didn't believe he was a ghost. They touched him. They ate with him. And it was this confidence that gave birth to the church. We are here because they had resurrection faith. In Peter's first sermon, he said very little about Jesus' life and ministry. Didn't bring up the Sermon on the Mount. Didn't bring up Jesus' miracles. He didn't talk about how gentle Jesus was. He didn't talk about his character. 
He didn't go through detailed explanations of, uh, of the wonders that he had seen. Listen to some of the things that, that Peter says in his first sermon in Acts chapter three. He gave them the all-important fact that he, God, was crucified as a criminal and was now alive. That was God's plan all along. On the ground of this fact, then, Peter calls them to repent from their sins and receive forgiveness. You see, the primary function of the early church was bearing witness to the resurrection, that Jesus had died and was now alive. The disciples went north, south, east, west with the message of his resurrection. The resurrection was the catalyst to launch a ragtag band of Jesus followers into a world-changing movement. So how did this happen? What was it that the resurrection provided for them? Well, the first thing that the resurrection provided for them was hope. They could actually now be fearless. So that brings us to our third point. The resurrection ensures, the resurrection of Jesus ensures our resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus ensures our resurrection. Look at this passage in 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man comes also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. Right, so there's a couple of, there's, there's a concept here right at the very beginning that I don't want you to miss. First of all, he's talking about falling asleep. So death is not a permanent thing, right? Death is a falling asleep. Implication is when you fall asleep, you wake up, right? So he's talking about um, this group of people or Jesus raised from the dead is the first fruits. So first fruits were common in Palestinian agriculture. What that would mean is they were the first grains of the harvest. And so this would be indicating that the harvest would soon be ripe to bring in. They were the first fruits. The first fruits were not the entirety of the harvest themselves. They were simply a pledge or a promise of more harvest to come. So what does it mean that Paul describes Jesus as the first fruits? It means that Jesus was the first of the resurrected bodies. Jesus' resurrected body was now perfected. It was a suited body to experience the fullness of the presence of God. Let me say that again. Jesus' resurrected body was suited not simply for the temporal here, but his resurrected body was suited to now be in the presence of God, suited for communion and obedience to God forever. This is why in John 20, verse 17, um, Jesus says, don't cling to me after he was resurrected, for I, I have not yet ascended to the Father. Like, you, don't hang on to me here. I have, I, I, I'm made for another destination. So Jesus, as the first fruits, also means that his resurrection has implications for us. If he is the first, then he has many followers to come. He has secured resurrection for us. Now, you might be looking at your body and thinking, if this is a resurrected body, I have a very dim view of heaven, right? If this is as good as it gets. But, but the resurrected body that is fit for life 
uh, with God you don't yet have. We haven't received our resurrected bodies yet, right? But that is what is to come. The harvest is not yet complete. We do not yet receive all the resurrected life that Jesus has provided for us when we become a Christian. Our experience is not yet complete. Our harvest isn't ready. Let me give you an example of this. The biblical language that we hear all throughout the New Testament is that we have to mature in Christ Jesus. We have to grow up like a baby who was born male or female, like a baby born male or female, right, is not yet a man or a woman. It has been secured for them in their DNA, but they have to grow up into that. That's the same thing for us with resurrected life. It has been secured for us. It is given to us, but we have to grow up into it. And when we come to faith in Jesus, what we are given is what the Bible calls, or or theologically is called regeneration, where we were dead to God and now we are alive to him. We are alive to God. That means as his sheep, we what? We hear his voice. That means we can interact with him. That means we can boldly engage God. We can talk with him. He is present with us. We are now spiritually alive. That's why John 3 talks about the need for us to be born again. We are alive to God, growing in him while we're still in this body that is subject to decay as we wait for the full harvest of the resurrection. Now, I think one of those implications of over-focusing on the historical nature of the resurrection is that we call the resurrection often a miracle, that what Jesus did was a miracle. Now, I know I just said that, but, but hear me out. You see, a miracle is a change in the way things are normally done. And then after the miracle happens, things go back to normal. Right, so a, a miracle for a moment suspends the laws of nature just for a moment as something outside, something supernatural invades our natural order. So we would pray for the healing of the sick. And we do that. We ask for God to do a miracle. God, do something that, that really like we, we can't make happen naturally. Will you supernaturally come in and, and, and bring healing? Suspend the laws of what this infection would normally do and stop it. Uh, suspend the laws of, 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 of how our bodies are subject to decay, at least for a little while, and bring healing. That's what we pray for when we pray for a miracle. And then sometimes God shows up and he does it. I mean, I'm looking at faces in this room that I know have experienced miracles in their day. And God shows up and we thank God for a miracle. Lazarus, you remember, Jesus raised him. He was resurrected from the dead. But Lazarus is not here this morning. Why? Because it was a miracle where he was uh, freed from death for a little while, but he went back to the same pattern of every other human being that has ever lived except for Jesus. So for Lazarus, it was just a temporary suspension of the natural order of things. But Jesus was not a miracle. Jesus changed the order of things forever. The resurrection marked a change in human history, a change in the way the world works. 
The resurrection marked the beginning of the end. Jesus was the first fruits. Jesus was the first one, but not the last one, who would not have to face death. This is the way C.S. Lewis says it. If you're not catching what I'm laying down, you can figure out C.S. Lewis. The New Testament writers speak of uh, speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open the door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. So God has defeated death. Death is done. The the defeated enemy of all humanity from the beginning of time has decisively been beaten. So we don't need to live in fear of death because resurrection in Christ is now a reality. We no longer have to live separated from the Father. We don't need to live in fear of death because resurrection is ours. God is fulfilling the prayer of Jesus Right, that what is in heaven would be on earth. What is true of heaven would be true of earth. So from now on, we don't need to fear death. There is a new way of living. Death no longer reigns. Death is no longer king. And like every superhero movie, when they discover their powers, it's now a new reality for them. So resurrection is not just about Jesus giving us a future hope. We are alive together with God now. Resurrection is already happening inside of us now. Resurrection means that something that belongs to the eternal, that thing being real life, the quality of life that is eternal. I'm not talking about duration, but the quality of life of being in the presence of God has now arrived on the scene in the resurrection of Jesus. So therefore, everything, everything is different. N.T. Wright says it this way, the resurrection completes the inauguration of God's kingdom. You know how we would have an inauguration, right? The inauguration of God's kingdom was at the resurrection. It is the decisive event demonstrating that God's kingdom really has been launched on earth as it is in heaven. The message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that you are now invited to belong to it. All right, let's make this practical. Right, so in the four facts of the resurrection, how does it impact us today? How does this resurrection truth get in to make an actual difference in our day? Because the truth is, that the resurrection of Jesus establishes the perfect conditions in which we live and mature in the Christian life, right? We can live resurrection life now. So how does that happen? What are those conditions that resurrection provides for us? The first one is this. It is a power for gaining victory over sin. Resurrection is power for gaining victory over sin. My favorite verse for this is Colossians 3, 1 to 10. Just listen to uh, these verses. If then you have been raised with Christ, okay, that's resurrection. 
If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then also uh, will ap- then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, since you've done that, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. What I'm saying is you have, because of resurrection power, you have the capacity to have victory over sin. I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not saying what, God is, what Paul is calling us to here in Colossians 3 of setting our minds on things that are above and not being ruled by appetites, opinions, desires here. I'm not saying that's easy, but I'm saying it's possible. I'm saying you can actually be changed from one degree of glory to the next. I have seen God rescue me from things in my life that that they were big, and Jesus, right, brought freedom. I've sat with many of you, and we've talked about you walking in victory over sin in your life because resurrection power is available to you. What else? What else does resurrection accomplish for us? What conditions does it provide? It is a power for the work of the kingdom of God. Acts 1.8, that we would receive power to be part of witness to the resurrection of Jesus. This comes after resurrection, right? His power is available to you. Here's what I want you to know. As a child of God, his power is available to you so that in moments, in conversations, you can interact with people and point them back to the great reality of the resurrection. It's available to you. I'm not saying it's available to you only because we have evangelists that do a great job of sharing their faith. Thank you, God, for evangelists. This is available to all of us. And we need to open our eyes to the invitations of the Holy Spirit to share the reality of resurrected Jesus. You will have opportunities this week where people need to hear the truth and you will be in relationship with them to share it. I guarantee it. Open your eyes to see it. Slow down enough to hear the nudges of the Holy Spirit to engage. Another condition of the resurrection is that the resurrection is the hope for our future. And I, I mean, I've, I've told many of these stories here, but these are those precious moments when you're at the bedside of a man or woman of faith and you get to see them cross the finish line and you get to cheer them on. That is a real hope that we get to carry inside of us, that there will be a homecoming. Our last one is that resurrection is our confidence for every circumstance. I love this story. This would be a great one for you to look up. It's Romans 4. God is calling Abraham to be a great nation. The problem is Abraham is old, and Abraham can't biologically have children. He says his body is as good as dead. 
But you know what Abraham believed? Abraham believed in the resurrection. Abraham believed in a God who was able to give life to things that were dead. Because of the resurrection, every circumstance of life that you walk through, every single one, because I know some of you are saying, yeah, but not this one, Greg. You don't know. Every single one has the capacity to receive the resurrection power of God. He can call things to life that, as you see them now, are currently dead. So whatever death you fear, remember, the centerpiece of our faith is resurrection. Here's how I want us to close. I believe that many of us still live in fear of death. I think many of us live in uh, a a place that would be characterized uh, by fear. Now, I don't mean the fear of death because we don't have a hope in, in what comes after we die or a hope of heaven. I don't mean the natural fear of experiencing dying. I mean a fear of death in the something, in the fact that something that we call life that we look to for life, we fear the loss of it. We live in fear that it will forever be lost to us. And in this way, we live in constant fear of death. We fear the death of a dream. We fear the death of, of not being able to achieve a certain goal that we've been working to for years. We fear the loss of a career. We fear the loss or the death of a relationship. We fear the death of our own personal freedom. Sometimes we fear the death of our own reputation. We fear the death of of the image that we try to portray to other people so that they can can desire us or, or want to be in relationship with us. We fear the death of financial freedom. We fear the death of of not getting into the college that we want. We fear the death of of maybe being exposed as a failure. We fear the death of of what is shameful for us coming into the light. I mean, I've heard stories of elementary children living in fear of the death of friendships, that forever they will be alone. I think so many of us in the church are alive, but we live in fear of death. In that place, we cry out for a miracle. We hear the truth that, that Jesus has authority over death, and we think, okay, this is good news. Jesus can, can resurrect my image, right? Jesus can come in and, 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 and breathe life into, into my relationships. Jesus can, can come in and alter my reputation. Jesus can be my financial provider, my financial advisor. Jesus can come in and bless and help me accomplish all of my dreams. But I think that's just the whipped cream at the banquet of resurrection hope. I think that's, I think that's reducing the hope of resurrection to something very small. Listen, Jesus did not come back to life to do a miracle in your career. Right? Jesus, didn't, Jesus didn't die, rise again, so that you could get career advancement. Jesus came to resurrect the mission of your life. Jesus didn't come back to life just to do a miracle in your marriage, but to empower you to be an agent of grace as you extend mercy and forgiveness to one another. Jesus didn't come back to, to life just to do a miracle to address your self-esteem, but to give you a new way to be alive. 
where, where you are no longer a slave to another person's opinion, but you are actually alive in this world not to be, uh, not to be a consumer of other people, but you're alive to be an agent of mercy and grace to others. That's resurrection power alive today. So, because he lives, you have power for gaining victory over sin. Because he lives, you have power for the work of the kingdom. Because he lives, you have hope for your future. And because he lives, you can with confidence address every circumstance that comes your way. So here's how I'd like us to close. I'd like to invite you to stand up and I'd like us to declare together the truth of what is ours because he lives.